Hello. Can everyone hear me? Yeah. This is a lively crowd. Yeah. Uh, my name is Susie Spear. I'm an alcoholic. My sobriety date is October 23rd, 2012. Um, I am a grateful, recovered alcoholic. Thank you all so much for having me here. My home group is the There's a Solution group in Raleigh, North Carolina. Technically, Carrie. We meet on Tuesdays and Thursdays at 7 p.m. So if you're ever in that area, let me know. We would love to have you. Um, I have a sponsor. I sponsor other women. You know, I've done just about, I've done several service positions in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, that has been great. It's been a joy. I've served at the state level, at our local intergroup. Um, that is not as much of a joy, but <laughs> I've been kicked off of one committee, so I feel like I'm a real AA member. I have to get kicked off of at least one. Uh, but the most important service that I believe that I've ever done in Alcoholics Anonymous is sit down with another woman, read the book with her, and take her through the steps like I was taken through the steps. Um, you know, I my sobriety does not hinge on some kind of title that I get in AA. And there were a few years in there where I was doing so much service that um, I thought I was pretty important, I'll admit it. Um, so I'm going to tell you what I was like, what happened, and what I'm like now. Um, you know, just a brief little blurb. I'm one of three children. My parents were married, had three children, and were divorced very quickly. And, um, you know, moved around a lot. There were drugs, alcohol, abuse of every sort in my family. Um, and, you know, the only reason that I say that is because when I arrived at Alcoholics Anonymous, I really would have told you if you had the life I had, if you were as poor as we were, if you lived in a trailer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you would drink the way that I drink. And, um, you know, I don't know that I truly believed that, but I had certainly used that as a shield throughout my drinking. And I'm here to tell you, uh, I had a sponsor just point out to me in the book that alcoholics, like the effect produced by alcohol, men and women drink for the effect produced. And although, you know, my first few years, I think I couldn't really uh, put that together for myself, I do know today that that is true. Because there are so many people roaming around out here that grew up in the same circumstances as I did that are not alcoholics. And God bless them. Um, I moved around a lot. You know, one of the first talks that was ever, like, recorded of me, please don't find it. But I told my mom's story about what I think her alcoholism looks like. And it was not until I made amends with her, you know, the very next time that I gave a talk after that, it's like it disappeared. I really did not realize how much resentment I held against my mother. But we did move around a lot. She had a few husbands, blah, 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 you know, fill in the blank. It probably happened. Um, but my relationship with God growing up was... You know, I saw in my grandparents, you know, both sets of my grandparents had very different faiths. You know, one was, you know, a hellfire brimstone and one was an actual cult. But <laughs> I did see what it looks like to have a relationship with a higher power, with God. You know, both of those sets of grandparents were very um, religious. They were very involved in their community, in their church, you know. 
if a church member needed something, they were there. And so I saw what that looked like, and I wanted that. By this point, I had moved from Birmingham, Alabama to East Tennessee. And I know that Alabama probably sounds like it would be the more redneck place. It was not. It was East Tennessee. And, um, you know, I really knew that my circumstances at home were really bad. And I thought, you know, I, I want to have what my grandparents have. So I started attending church, and um, that was great, you know. But I looked around, and my circumstances at home were not changing. We were still poor, white, trash. There was still abuse in the home. There was still alcohol in the home. And I remember turning my back on God. I continued attending church. I continued getting out of the house. But I remember just thinking, you know, I see God working in all these other people's lives. And it looked like outside circumstances, cars, money, clothes, what have you. But I just knew that that wasn't going to happen for me. So I turned my back on God that day. Always believed in God. Always believed there was something out there. Just probably not for me. So, um, that was kind of my history with God growing up, and I always believed. I started drinking alcoholically when I was 20 years old. I'm what our literature refers to as a pure guzzler. Um, All I did was drink alcohol, and I managed to get to Alcoholics Anonymous in about five years. You know, when I arrived here, there were some old-timers that said, you know, well, I spilled more alcohol than you drank, and all of those types of things, and, you know, I just knew how to not spill it and get here sooner, Um, but I started drinking alcoholically at age 20, and, you know, I briefly kind of tried traditional college. That didn't work out for me. I decided to go to trade school. You know, I'm finishing up trade school, and I'm dating this man who, you know, was a few years older than me, and he was just like, Susie, what are you going to do when you turn 21 and you don't know how to drink at the bar? And I was just like, oh, my God, you're right, you know? And I started drinking alcoholically that day. (laughs) Now, what I can tell you, it is not that man's fault that I'm an alcoholic. He did not force me to drink, uh, but he did teach me a lot of things I needed to know. I started drinking moonshine that day, and I learned that if I could keep it down the first go around, that was ideal. If not, just try again. Um, I learned that moonshine cherries would get you where you needed to go. Don't overdo it. You're going to overdo it. You're an alcoholic like me. Um, But, you know, I learned that I wanted to black out. I can't tell you if I blacked out that night, probably, because I don't remember it. But my... I wanted to black out. I wanted to get out of my head. I wanted to get out of my heart. I wanted to not deal with things that I had done, that I hadn't done, family that I had showed up for, that I hadn't, the condition I had showed up for them. Uh, You know, at some point, probably when I was around 17, 18 years old, I changed my phone number one day and just didn't talk to my mom. And that's what I would do. I had several phone numbers in a five or six year period because if you... You know, it was like looking in a mirror 
for my relationship with my mother, and I just couldn't deal with it. So I just changed my phone number and kept it moving, didn't think twice. That's the kind of daughter that I was. Um, you know, I couldn't show up for any family or friends, truthfully. The only time that I would show up for anything is when I was feeling really bad about myself, and I wanted you to think, well, how great is it that Susie showed up to, you know, take me to pick up my car, whatever the silly thing was. So my drinking progressed um, really quickly. And, you know, I got a job. It was my first, like, professional job in my career. And I, I didn't know this at the time, but what I would do is I would work my schedule around my drinking. And I wanted to work 12 or 13 hours a day and then have the next day off so that I could drink all day and then work 12 or 13 hours the next day and then have a day off so I could drink all day. And when a boss kind of like didn't want me to do that, I just figured out how to get her job and then make the schedule myself. So I was a good employee. I always showed up for work. Uh, I guess I was good at looking good on the outside maybe in my field of work, there are a lot of alcoholics and drug addicts, so maybe they were just like, I don't know, she's better than the rest, but I figured out how to make the schedule, and I did all the other responsibilities that went along with that, but I really didn't care about the money, didn't care about the responsibility, being the boss, I just wanted to make the schedule, and I did that, and um, you know, my off days from work looks like getting up doing some drunk cleaning, some drunk laundry, which just meant, you know, that I started drinking and kind of pretending to do some stuff, and I'd pass out and get up and repeat. So my relationship with that man went on for far too long. You know, we were the people who, you know, would go out on the boat, and I would be blackout drunk, and he'd toss me off, and it was just <clears throat> hilarious and a joke, or I would change all the locks to the house because he wouldn't answer the phone for two days, you know. Um, that's what that looked like, and at some point, you know, it got to where I really did not like to go out and drink. I would do it, but I didn't love it. Um, I, Irish goodbye every time. I would just leave and go home and drink the way I really wanted to drink. Now, I didn't try to not drink how I wanted to drink while I was out, but I would much rather do it alone in my garage, chain-smoking cigarettes, with the garage open about this much, uh, calling family, friends, whomever, dumping all of my garbage on them, hanging up, and then turning my phone off. That's what I preferred to do. And drunk Susie got to the point where I would just delete my call list and my text message list uh, at some point during the night, turn my phone off, and then I just wouldn't even have to worry about what happened the next day. I was like, this is great. Nothing happened. Uh, but, you know, eventually I decided that it was that man's fault who I've been dating off and on, and I was going to North Carolina to visit my sister, and I said, you know, when I'm coming to visit you in five weeks, I think I'm just going to move to North Carolina. And she said, I think that's a great idea. And my family has always been supportive in the way that they know how. So I moved to North Carolina. I told that, that man I had been dating four years, about two weeks. Like, hey, I'm moving in two weeks. See you later. And I moved. And I can't tell you that I 
I even thought for a second that alcohol was, was the problem, a problem. I don't know, but my drinking got way worse. I mean, I never knew it could get worse than what it was when I moved. And um, I convinced my dad to move to North Carolina from Alabama. And then I didn't go see him for like a month or two months. You know, like that's just who I was. I, I had all these good ideas and I wanted you to think that I was showing up for you, but I really wasn't. So I got a job in North Carolina. Everything's going great. I convinced my dad to move there. Now I'm drinking and crying alone and calling people and chain smoking cigarettes on a really small porch, which is a huge downgrade from my big garage that I had previously. And I had neighbors, and it was not good. Um, but I decided to go and visit my dad because he had been living in North Carolina for a while at that point, and I hadn't been to visit him. So I decided to go visit him, and when I did, what I can tell you is my day off from work, I did what I always do. When I had moved to North Carolina, I tried to get the schedule I wanted for work. When I didn't, I got my boss's job, I made the schedule. I did the same thing that I always do. And when I decided to go meet my dad, I can tell you it was my off day from work, so that means that I had been drinking. I don't know how much, I didn't ever, I didn't ever try to control my drinking by how much I drank. It was like, okay, I'm gonna work today and then I'm gonna drink all day tomorrow. That's how I controlled it. So I know I had been drinking that morning. I get to my dad's house and he had a computer question. I don't know if you've ever tried to help your parents with a computer question, but he shouldn't have been asking me anyway. So I help him with that. I can tell you that I drank while I was there. I don't know how much. This is just like what I did. It's who I was at that time. And when I was on my way back home, I got probably within maybe a mile of my house. And I hit two people who were walking in their neighborhood. And what I can tell you about that time is that I had been drinking for about five years at that time. I had never been in trouble before. Um, and I could not drink enough at that time in my life to get to the place where I got out of my head and I got out of my heart, I could not do it. Um, so I was completely aware of what was going on. And I called the police and they took me to jail. Um, and I just knew in that moment, I still really didn't know that alcohol was the problem. But I knew that if I had to stay in that jail for the rest of my life, I deserved it. I hadn't been able to look at myself in the mirror for years. Like, I hated who I was. Um, I went in front of the magistrate judge that night, around midnight maybe, and he just said, you know what? I hope that you had a good time because the man that you hit is probably going to die. And the woman is critically injured. And I'm going to make sure that you go away for a long time. And he just ushered me away. He did not even want to look at me. And I knew that feeling. Because I'd had it for myself for so long. Um, and he just ushered me away. Just like, please get her out of here. I, um, I got bailed out of jail by my family. My, my sister and my dad. And I didn't know what to do. I'd never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, there are a lot of potential alcoholics in my family, I would guess, but 
I had never heard of Alcoholics Anonymous, so I called an attorney who said, you need to go and talk to someone and do an alcohol assessment. So I did that. And that was the first time that I had been honest about my drinking, how much exactly I was drinking, um, at what times of the day. You know, I don't know that I necessarily lied to people about my drinking, but I was completely honest with this sweet, cute little old man. Um, and he just like looked up at me and he was like, you're going to treatment. And I didn't really know what that meant. I knew what rehab was, you know. I grew up in the age of like Lindsay Lohan, Paris Hilton, Britney Spears. So like I knew what rehab was because he said, you're going to treatment. And I was like, um, okay. And that was the first time that I had ever just taken direction from someone that I did not know, but I believed had my best interests in mind. So I went to a treatment center. It was 28 days. They kept me for 30 at the advice of an attorney. When I got there, they said, you know, if the police come and pick you up while you're here, that means that the man that you critically injured has died. Other than that, we're not going to tell you anything. And looking back, you know, I was really able just to do what work I needed to do there uh, because they were not giving me updates. But it was something, you know, I knew I was going to prison. I didn't know for how long. I didn't know when. Um, and this treatment center was great. It uh, was in the smallest county ever in North Carolina. And it was just like eight women in a house. And we had chores and all of these things. And, you know, hey, treatment is great. I don't have anything negative to say about it. There were charts. There were graphs. Chalk talk. Father Martin. Like, here's what drugs and alcohol do in the body. I learned that I should have been doing cocaine to stay up later to drink more. <laughs> but um, I was introduced to Alcoholics Anonymous. And when I walked into that first meeting, it was in an old train depot. It was all men who I thought were ancient. They were not that old. But I thought that they were really old. It was my 25th birthday, the first day I arrived in treatment. I had been sober, been sober for one week. And um, I knew that that's where I needed to be. You know, I didn't know if I'd have a good, fun, happy life. But I knew that I would be able to not drink and not hate myself. Um, that's what I heard there. So when I left treatment, uh, my counselor... Listen, I really didn't know. One of the counselors was an Al-Anon, and one was an AA. I didn't even know what that meant, but everyone hated the Al-Anon lady. Sorry, <laughs> And my counselor in treatment was the AA lady, so I knew that, like, I had the better counselor. And she asked me, she said, are you going to go to an AA meeting when you leave here? And I was like, yes, absolutely. I was a couple hours away from home. Yes, absolutely. I'm going to do it tonight. I had no intentions of doing that. And so she gets on the phone, she calls a woman that was in Raleigh, where I was going home to, gives her all of my personal information, says, um, you know, this woman's got my address, my phone number, just everything. And then she hands me the phone, and this, this is how I remember it. She, this woman on the phone says, you know, I'm going to pick you up at five, and I'm going to take you to a meeting. I'm like, well, my family's probably going to want to know, like, who I'm with and where we're going. And they haven't seen me in a month. I remember her just saying, being like, I'm going to pick you up at five and hanging up the phone. She assures me that she was like, honey, sweetie, everything's going to be fine. You know, um, 
But she did. She took me to a meeting that night, and that was my first AA meeting in Raleigh. I was, you know, a little over a month sober. All of these women came up to me giving me their phone numbers, you know, asking me how long I'd been sober, where I'd been, what was going on, you know. Uh, did you get a DUI? You know, well, how'd you end up here? And I had so much guilt and shame about how I had ended up in Alcoholics Anonymous that I just went with whatever was being said. You know, someone was like, oh, did you get a DUI? And I'd be like, yeah, kind of, yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, you know, just whatever it was. Because I believed that you all had got sober and were happy about it and were living lives led by God and that you were humble servants. But I just couldn't, like, I thought if you found out what I had done, it was just going to be worse. Like, and I was going to be looked at differently, and y'all were going to be like, ooh, mm, probably not for you. Um, and that's just that, you know, reverse ego of like, oh, well, I'm so much worse and horrible and bad. And, um, y'all could never love me the way I see you love each other. So I finally knew, like, when I was going to prison, this home group, you know, and I had that first home group for about seven years, this home group... Uh, really rallied around me. I didn't have a driver's license. People picked me up. I never wanted to go to a meeting and couldn't get to one. Now, I was going to a lot of meetings that I did not like, <laughs> or I thought I didn't like the young people's meetings. I didn't, you know, I didn't like it where everyone chanted the steps. Or so, but I went. You know, people were picking me up and taking me to meetings, and. Um, you know, this woman who had taken me to my first meeting out of treatment, her name was Ladybug, and she was an old-timer by that point. She has well over 40 years now, but she said, you need to get honest with some, some women about what's going on because you're going to prison, and these women are going to be able to hook you up with people that take meetings into the facilities, you know? And so I finally sat all of my friends down, uh, at a coffee shop, and it's like, y'all, I need to tell you something, like, please sit down, this is, like, really big news, and one of my friends looked at me, and she was like, I mean, are you going to jail, are you going to prison, like, what's the deal that happens all the time in AA, like, <laughs> and I just remember thinking, like, she's from a really nice town around where we live, and I just remember thinking, like, hey, you've never been to jail or prison, so you can say it's not a big deal, um, but that really helped kind of break the ice for me. And that woman was able to introduce me to the women who took the meetings into the facilities where I was going to be housed. And I just, I, I couldn't fathom, I couldn't understand why anyone would go into these facilities. Uh, these women assured me I would be able to get a book, I would be able to stay sober, I would be able to work the steps, how to reach out. They let me know. You know, if you don't have a phone call, you can find a book. Write to the address in the back of the book. Tell them where you're going. We'll get in contact somehow. And that was just a godsend to me, um, to have that connection of people that, like, I didn't even really know. They're like, write to New York. Write to GSO. Uh, tell them you're looking for Jerry or whoever, you know, in Raleigh. And I'm like, I don't think that's how that works. And that's exactly how it works. It's mind-blowing. So I did end up going to prison, and um, at my sentencing, you know, I'd had an attorney at my sentencing, 
my attorney said, Susie, you know, these people that you hit want to talk to you. And I had the options of kind of dragging it out, not going to prison, trying to defer. I don't want to do any of that. I just wanted to get to my consequences and get it over with. And he said, you know, these people want to talk to you. And I said, I uh, don't think I can do that. I need to talk to some people, but I just, I don't know. And I talked to my sponsor and some other women at that time, and I'm like, you know, these people want to talk to me, and I don't think I can do that. And, you know, my sponsor looked at me, and she was like, well, it's a good thing it's not about you. And that is the way that I've pretty much always been sponsored. You know, I need someone who can remind me who I am, who can tell me the truth about myself who can be really direct with me about the actions I need to take in a way that I can understand them. And I can understand that. So I was able to meet with these people, and they told me a lot of hard truths, you know. But the, the reality of the situation is, is they don't have any existing injuries today because of that accident. Now, I'm not going to tell you that if the same thing happens to you, uh, and you start working this program, that it's a fail-safe and the people will be okay. Um, but I will say that no matter what would have happened, I was able to look those people in the face. And at that time, I didn't know that they were going to be okay. And I was able to accept forgiveness and um, really, really tell them about the things I had done in the couple of months leading up to that. So they were very good Christian couple, and they just wanted to see me have a relationship with God, and I'm very thankful that they were able to see that. So when I got to prison, listen, you don't have to go to prison to get sober, do not recommend, but you can get sober and stay sober no matter what, and I thought going into it that I was going to have to uh, get a girlfriend, join a gang, I don't know, <laughs> do something. But I did know that I wasn't supposed to date for the first year, so I it was going to be a little tricky. And, uh, you know, none of those things ended up being true. I was able to, to the best of my ability at that time, work spiritual principles. And I did not date during that first year, thank you. Um, you know, it wasn't the easiest thing to work the steps. I can stand up here and tell you a lot of, like, funny stories or really tragic stories about things that happened when I was incarcerated, but uh, I was able to get and stay sober. There were meetings in every facility where I was. I was in a maximum security prison for the majority of my time, and the volunteers were always there no matter what. There was a woman who was pregnant. You know, I mean, she was, like, very visibly pregnant, and I just remember looking at her and being like, why do you come here? Like, isn't there someone else available? Like, how rude of AA to make you do this commitment. And she would just look at me and say, you know, Susie, one day you will understand. You know, like, I'm freely giving back. It doesn't matter. You're an alcoholic. This is not like you're an inmate. You're an alcoholic who happens to be housed in this facility, and I want to give back to you. Um... So I kind of learned the steps out of order, if you will. I completed all of the steps while I was incarcerated. I know. I thought that I wasn't going to have to do that. I read ahead in the book and was like, a bunch of this crap I'm not going to be able to do. So no problem. Yes, I'll do all of it. Um, but 
my sponsor was like, hey, uh, I'm not willing to help you if you're not willing to go to any lengths to stay sober. And you told me that you were willing to go to any lengths to stay sober. And you told me that you were willing to have a relationship with a higher power. And you told me that you were willing to give this back to someone else. So either you hold up your end of the deal here or I will find someone else to help. So, you know, I uh, worked all the steps. I took several women through the steps, at least to like the fourth and fifth step, you know, people really weren't too interested in doing that. I was a reformer at that time. I knew everyone who was incarcerated was a drug addict or an alcoholic. Everyone needed to get sober. I had my blue book ready to go everywhere. Everyone's getting sober. Uh, that lasted a few months, you know, until I was really able to listen to my sponsor, until I was really able to understand that I didn't need to convince people they were an alcoholic. But I still did that. Um, when I was going to do, like, my fourth and fifth step, it was, like, through the mail, one phone call a day. AA members were coming to visit me with my family. I got to make amends to my dad with two other women from AA there with two guards, like, wondering what we're doing because they keep stopping me being like, okay, no, you're just apologizing. That's not the point. Uh, Mr. Spear, one second. Just act like you can't hear us. And then they, like, tell me what I needed to do. And it was very uh, in-the-moment hands-on. But I was able to do it. I wrote letters from the facility. I really didn't want to do that. I didn't want the stamp to be on the amends letter. Um, my sponsor pointed out to me, you know, I was like, I'll send it to you, and then you send it to them, and just do another envelope. And she said, you know, Susie, you were on the news. Everyone knows where you are. Um, so just things like that. Uh, really being humbled and needing to be, quite honestly. So I, I was really trying to stay sober. I don't want to make it sound like I was just like this. I was the shining star of AA in North Carolina Correctional Institute for Women. <laughs> That's what I'll say. Um, but there are so many things that I've learned since then that I could have done differently. One of the biggest uh, arguments I ever got in, there's no air conditioning in that facility, it was over a fan and like ergonomics and the fans need to be going like this. And it was a whole thing, not my proudest moment. Um, you know, I also was learning about traditions in a way before I really understood what that meant. I got a job in the kitchen. No one wanted that job. It was 10 cents a day. You know, I told my sponsor, like, I'm probably gonna have to fake an injury or have an actual injury so I can get out of this job. And she's like, hey, let's not do that, but you just do the job. Uh, so I took that suggestion. And very quickly, I was promoted several times in a row. And I was making 15 cents a day. Uh, but I was the person who would like give out the cookies or the cake. Sugar is a drug if you're unaware and it gets stolen in prison, sold in prison. And if you're the cookie and cake girl, you can get shanked, honestly. So <laughs> this girl told me, she said, hey, um, I see that you're new. You're going to give me more. You're going to give me double. I'm just like, yikes. And I remember telling my sponsor, like, hey, this is one of those things that, like, we just have to put the spiritual principles to the side, and I'm just going to have to do this. And she said, Susie, you know, you can, you can live spiritual principles anywhere. And if you're serious about getting and staying sober, you can do that. If you start these little small actions, they're going to build up. You'll drink again. Uh, I thought that was a little dramatic. 
But I listened to her, and I did not do any of that. The day arrived where this, this girl told me, today's the day. I'm going to be waiting for you. It's over for you. And I had told my sponsor on the phone, like, hey, if something happens to me, I just want you to know, like, thank you so much for helping me, but it is your fault. <laughs> so the day arrived. She's waiting for me after work. And, you know, several of the other women that worked in this kitchen, this is like a 1500 inmate camp. And, you know, these women were like, hey, we're going to walk you back down to the quad. And in prison, that's not how that works. Like, if someone does something for you, you have to do something for them. And I'm like, I'm not interested in that. And I said, listen, you're trying to do something different. You walk around with your little blue book and whatever. Like, we see that. Like, I'm not going to let you get annihilated, basically. Um, and I did, and I never did owe them anything. And so that really taught me that I didn't think anyone knew or was watching or cared about what I was doing. Um, I was trying to help other people. It was really difficult. And I just remember women in AA being like, yeah, people are watching what you're doing, even if they think it's stupid. Even if they're like, look at that girl who's like praying at her bed every day and night. Like, that's not going to work. So that really taught me that no matter who I think is watching me, like, I still need to do the right thing. I need things like that uh, to happen to me. I need to realize things like that. Uh, because if I don't, then I'll just think it's all for naught. My relationship with God, that's probably the best my relationship with God has ever been. Is that time I was incarcerated. I was really dialed in. I was attending church regularly. You know, I felt the power of God. I had nothing but time, you know. But I felt the power of God. And I'm always kind of like trying to get back to doing what I did that first amount of time where I was incarcerated. Uh, I worked down my time. I got out on parole and probation and post-release and, you know, and, and, and. But I was able to get out early. And when I did, you know, that night, I was happy to go to an AA meeting. It was just such a different experience than when I left treatment. You know, I left that night. I went to my home group. I hadn't gotten honest with everyone about where I was going and what was going on. But... I got honest with enough people that I, you know, they knew when I would be out that I would be back at the group. I showed up to the home group, and a man came up to me, and he was just like, oh, hey, mm, Susie, is that your name? Like, I haven't seen you in a while. It's good to see you. And I had just had this fear that someone was going to come up to me and be like, oh, you've been out adding to your story, or what's going on? You're picking up a white chip? You know, I just, like, I still had so much shame, guilt, and remorse about um, what I had done that, you know, I had a lot of fear about that. And that one man just being like, oh, I haven't seen you in a while. Good to see you. It, it, it was like healing in a way for me. I was just like, okay, all right. No one's, like, accusing me of anything. Your people did eventually later that night. But that first guy didn't. And that was important, you know? Um... You know, being able to work the steps face-to-face, one-on-one with the sponsor, that is the preferred method, okay? I've done it through the mail, over the phone. I've sponsored women online, you know. But face-to-face, there's just nothing that beats it. And if you can do that and you can have that experience at any point in your sobriety, please do. Because there's just something so amazing about being able to hear someone else's experience, relate to it. You know, our book describes it beautifully several times. Of like, 
you know, just hearing someone else and being able to relate to it. There are so many, there are so many people, I think, that just think like, oh, in North Carolina, I'm probably the prison girl. I don't like it, but like, that's probably the reality of it. There are a couple other women that I know in the state that have been to prison and stayed sober. Um, We try to help women in a lot of facilities, but... You know, there are many more men that stay sober. And so sometimes I can just really feel like an outsider. I do that to myself. But I can be in a room full of people and I'm like, oh, God, I'm just like the one who's like the, everyone comes up to who's like, oh, that's my worst fear. You went to prison. Oh, my God. I can't believe that happened. Um, But sitting one-on-one with someone and having them be able to relate the feelings I was feeling, the way I was drinking, uh, and it had nothing to do with the circumstances. Like, my consequences didn't get me sober. They scared me. You know, when it says in the big book, like, fear sobered us for a bit, I can relate to that. Because there was a week period between having that car wreck to going to treatment that I did not drink. I cannot tell you what I did during that time. It's kind of a blur. I mean, I guess I was just detoxing. But uh, fear sobered me a bit. But no one has ever treated me differently because of my circumstances, because of my consequences. And um, so it's been amazing to sponsor other women one-on-one and see them have that spiritual experience. I have an amazing relationship with my higher power today. I choose to call my higher power God. I've tried just about everything you can. I've been to, you know, churches and mosques and just Spiritual only things, the bowl ceremonies, yoga, blah, blah, blah. Uh, I've tried it all. What I can tell you is all of it got me closer to God. Uh, I didn't continue to do all of that forever. Um, but all of that really impacted the way I see my higher power and how I live my life today. I, um, it was pretty challenging getting out of prison, not to get a job. I did that, no problem. Not to make money, that was fine. I didn't have a driver's license for about five years, and that was horrible. I can't even believe that I've had my driver's license probably now for longer than I didn't. But I never, once again, went without going to a meeting. If I was willing to ask for a ride, someone was going to give me a ride. It may not be the person I liked. It may not be the meeting I liked. But I would get to a meeting. Uh, that taught me a lot about asking for help. You know, I still had so much pride in a weird way about I would want, like, a family member to do it or, like, my boyfriend to do it or something like that so that I didn't have to be embarrassed about asking for a ride. It's so stupid when I say it up here now, but so that I didn't have to be embarrassed about it. Um, and I tried several times to get my license back. The DMV said, you know, permanently revoked but we'll let you, like, come and, like, try to get it back and tell you no a few times. And so I did that. I got really frustrated. And my sponsor just said, hey, all you have to do is take the action. The result is not up to you. And I'm like, the action is very expensive, and I'm getting very angry every time I show up there and pay them a lot of money. And they say, no. Um, and, you know, the time that I did get my license, I really didn't want to be there that day. And I told my sponsor, like, hey, I don't want to go. Like, I just want to cancel or not show up. And she said, take the action. So I took the action. And it was like a blur. I walked in there. They were like, okay, yeah, great, great, great. Oh, that'll be X amount of dollars. Yeah, I'll send it to you in the mail. 
And I was so stunned that I walked home. It was like two miles. I was just like, I don't know what just happened, but I have to walk home from here because I have to figure out what exactly is going on. And that's just kind of how my sobriety has been. I have to try things several times um, for it to happen. I'm a felon forever. You know, that made it a little difficult with housing. Once I could just try, just go show up, show your face, explain what happened or don't, but like go show your face and talk to people. And eventually I was able to get a lease on my own. I had to live with people, with family who were drinking, with sober AA members who were slobs, with, you know, I had to do that for periods of time, but, um, Eventually, I persisted, and I complained all along the way, okay? Like, I really did, but I persisted, and I was able to have my own place with my name on it. It was a studio apartment that was, like, 300 square feet, but it was mine, and I loved that, and I did that for years. Um, I, like I said, I've done a lot of service in AA. One thing that I um, did not want to do was ever step foot in a prison again. And I kept telling my sponsor, like, you know, I'm not hearing my story. I was being told, like, listen for your story. You'll hear it. And I wasn't hearing it. And so I was like, you know, I just never want to step foot in another prison again. Thank you. She encouraged me to. I, I also would tell people, like, that's where I was housed. And I'm still a felon. Yes, I'm off paper now. But they probably won't let me back in. And I completely made that up. I decided that on my own. And I was encouraged to send the paperwork in, and I did several times, and I did not follow up on it at all, but I sent it in. And a woman heard me say, yeah, I haven't heard anything, don't think I'll be able to go back in. And she's like, oh, I'll call them. And she called them, and then she was like, sending me text updates, you know, like 11.07, I've been transferred. 11.10, now I'm talking to who we need to talk to. And, you know, I was able to go back in, uh, not... Not very long after that, they gave me what we call a blue card, and they allowed me to go back into that facility. And I'm one of the only ones who still goes into that facility, but it is, like, some of the greatest service I've ever done. It's very difficult. Sometimes they don't let you in for BS reasons, just because, you know, they don't want to that day. But I'm so grateful to be able to give back in that way that women so freely gave to me. Um, and it's amazing. There have been several women who, you know, get out and I'm able to see them in meetings and go to wherever they live in the state and see them do well, either for a while and then I see them back in the prison or a few of them have been able to stay sober with a few slips um, over some time. Probably the biggest amends that I made was to my mother. I had not talked to her in a very long time. And I talked about it a lot with my sponsor, and I just said, you know, um, uh, I don't ever want to talk to her. Like, I'm sober now. I'm, I definitely don't have anything in common with her now. And she said, the time will come. You'll know, and you need to take the action. So true. And I had talked about it with her ad nauseum. And so I knew when that day arrived... And I picked up the phone, you know, I said a prayer. This is what I've learned to do is um, I pray, say a prayer, and I talk to someone in AA. Maybe not. If I've talked about it enough, I probably don't need to call them and talk about it again. 
But I called her and, you know, she was just surprised to hear from me. I was like, hey, mom, you know, it's Susie. And she's like, Susie Spear? Like, she just couldn't believe her daughter was calling her. And I arranged a time to go and see her. An AA member drove me out there because I didn't have my driver's license at that time. And um, I sat across from the table from her and I was able to make amends with her. Now, what I'll tell you is she was not sober while I was making amends to her. I did not expect her to be sober. Um, But I was able to look at her and love her for exactly who she is, um, for one of God's children. And I know that that did not come from me. Now, I wish I could tell you that my relationship with her is good today. I call her once a week. She may or may not answer She'll probably call me at midnight, 1, 2 a.m., 3 a.m., leave me a voicemail. She doesn't remember leaving. And I call her the next Tuesday. That's the agreement that I've made with her. That's how I can show up as a daughter for her. I go and see her every few years. um, And I show up in the way that I can, being a daughter to her. And AA has taught me that I don't have to crawl before anyone. But there are ways that I can show up um, to these relationships that I harmed, and I don't get to say, but she did this, and she did that, and what about this, this, and this? I just have to totally divorce myself from any of that and just show up as a daughter I can. Um, This sounds really good saying it to all of y'all, but I do call my sponsor and other people like, you will never believe what the voicemail said tonight. Can you believe what I did when I was 13? Like, she just told me again. Um, But, uh, you know, I love her for who she is. And I know that that does not come from me. And anytime I'm having an issue with anyone, really, um, kind of in my close orbit, I just think about how God was able to heal and mend that relationship. And if that was possible, then probably any relationship can be healed and mended. Um, You know, I changed my home group, I guess, in 2020. And that was a great change for me. You know, I'm not someone who's going to sit up here and say, if you don't have the greatest home group, if you don't think it's the greatest, you need to change. I don't know. But I love my home group. We, it's a, it's a pretty big commitment for those of us who make it one. seems like a lot of you all do that as well. Um, I currently have a service commitment at our local inner group. It sucks. But anyway, I can say that because I'm in a different state. Um, but I'm powering through it. And I'm trying to do my best to bring God into that and to keep my mouth shut when necessary, which is a lot. Um, But our home group goes out to eat before every meeting, Tuesday and Thursday. It's like a 5 o'clock we get there to set up. We go to eat at 5.30. We get back at 6.30. We greet people. You know, and then the same group of us typically will stay after until 8.30, maybe 9. Someone has something we jump in a van and we'll travel several other people were speaking or there would be a van of people here tonight um acting insane um we've all you know went we've been whitewater rafting together we you know there's so many things i thought that i was going to get sober and i wasn't going to be able to have fun anymore and i probably have more fun and remembered it um, with people that i've met in alcoholics anonymous so if you're new you know, I mean, my, my life has changed so much. I do have so many things on the outside these days. I do. Um, I've worked really hard. Uh, but really what Alcoholics Anonymous has given me is a relationship with a higher power. And I can look myself in the mirror 
And I can look any one of you in the eyes. And I know that if all of that outward stuff left tomorrow, I could still stay sober no matter what. And I would still have all of you all. So thank you for having me.